working together. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remained steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire... When it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, so we're going to just stop right there. And no, I'm not going through that. I promised that I would take this text a little slower, that I would do a thorough exposition of this text. So I'm going to deal with verses 2, 3, and 4 specifically. But as we get started tonight, I want to show you sort of the three, four, four ways in which I divide the letter of James. I divide the letter of James into three different or four different sections. The first one is chapter one all the way through verse 18, which uh, I didn't read tonight, um, is sort of James talking to these Christians who happen to be ethnic Jews about trial and suffering and maturity. So this first section, James deals with the suffering of the church as a blessing from God, as a gift of God, and that this suffering builds us to maturity. It grows us to the headship of Christ, as Paul would say to the Ephesians. The second section is dealing with maturity and then knowing that we are to mature And as we mature, we are to mature in love and that in the midst of that love, we are still going to see trials. And specifically, we're going to see trials together. So the third section of this text, starting in chapter 3, gives some instruction related to that intimacy, to that serving and worshiping and growing and maturing through trials together. And I would sort of say that that third section would be... James teaching about how we should love in the trials and with the trials each other. The final section, well, maybe the fourth, there's a fifth one, but I'll save it for later. The fourth thing that I see in this text, starting in chapter 4, verse 13, is when James begins to help the church look with eyes of faith at the sovereignty of God in the context of a very troubled world. So I would say that we would entitle that section how we should live with each other in contrast to the world with eyes of sovereignty 
or eyes that look to sovereignty. And we'll, we'll unpack those every time. So tonight and for the next few weeks going forward, we are going to be looking at the first 18 verses little by little by little, back and forth, back and forth going to and fro in it. And we're going to be looking at how the church is called to suffer so that they may mature. So that they may mature. Last week we looked at verse 2 and we saw, or verses 1 and 2 specifically, and we saw that the joy of the Lord is commanded. And the joy of the Lord is commanded in the context of trials. The joy of the Lord is promised in the context of trials. The joy of the Lord is purposeful in the context of trials. So that the trials do something. And those trials cause us to be steadfast. And a steadfast man has full effect and is perfected. Lacking nothing. He is complete. And so we're going to go through that a little bit tonight. And I want to remind you something that I said that I did not expound on very much. But I think it is the centerpiece of these first few verses. Is that the believer, remember this is not evangelistic. James is not writing to any lost people whatsoever so that they may get the gospel right. The gospel is right in their hearts and minds. They understand it. But their life is not right. It is not right. They were suffering, so things weren't right there. They were stressed out, so things weren't right there. They were emotionally troubled. Uh, Things weren't right financially because they were in the dispersia. Things weren't right socially because they were ostracized. Things weren't right intimately because they had infighting. So there was this disconnect with being the body of Christ. They weren't loving the body of Christ as Christ. And it's interesting because as as I... Starting a new book, all of you who know me know that this is what I do. When I start a new theme in a book and I'm studying, I put it out on social media for two purposes. One is it sort of primes the pump. Second, it gives me a platform to which I prepare my notes uh, because I don't like to write things down when I, when I study and, and teach. And, and thirdly, it, it tests the waters in the, con- in the context of how I can say certain things. And it surprises me that so many people who say that they love Christ hate the church. It surprises me that people who are brothers in the faith treat other brothers and sisters in the faith as if they have some type of superiority over them or some type of spiritual knowledge against their souls and hearts. It blows my mind that when the scripture says that the very thing that is our act of worship is to love one another as Christ loved the church. The very thing that Christ has taught the disciples in the latter part of John's gospel to go into every apostolic epistle that we see printed before us in this text, no matter what language it's in, is that we are to serve Christ by serving one another. We are to love Christ by being lowly and humble and quiet through service to one another. And we are to be long-suffering and patient if we are spiritual and mature. The problem is when people cannot do that, they are still infants. And beloved, there are times when we, even if we are mature, act like infants. (laughs) We pitch our fits and we have our days and we wish we could have our way. But the unity of the faith allows the sovereignty of God to work intimately within the body so that we grow to understand. And when we're all on edge and and then the word of God is given to us and we pray together and we worship together through the hearing of the word, all of a sudden the spirit of God does an incredible work. He pacifies us and brings us back to the center. And realizes, helps us to realize, and this is the point I'm trying to make, is that we're not the ones who are truly standing here before the Lord. Christ has stood for us. We stand in Him. We have been raised alive in Him. Because He is alive, we are alive. Because He is perfect, we are perfect. This is an imputed standing. This is an imputed relationship. This is an imputed righteousness 
that one day will be fulfilled in reality. So until then, we are to practice and strive and yearn and long because of the love of God in Christ for us to live in a manner accordingly as Christ lived for us. Now, beloved, that is a tall order and it's an impossible reality. However, I think we should do it day by day. We should not measure, you know, we shouldn't be like the Red Cross with the little, with the little bubble, uh, what do you call that thing, the thermometer. And, you know, we fill it up. We're getting pretty loving. We're really, oh, we're loved to the max. We've completed. No, we're never going to see that. We don't, we don't do that. Are we loving one another this moment? Are we putting, that's why we take the Lord's table every week. Because we have to put aside animosity. We have to put aside division. We have to put aside our rule, our flesh, our knowledge, our zeal, and our understanding. And we lay it bare before the Lord. And we know that it is only by grace that we stand before the Father of righteousness without dying. Because Christ died in our place. He stood in our place and He stands today at the right hand of the Father in majesty. And we are as good as with Him in that context. So steadfastness is not just a principle to live by. It's about completeness that is in Christ. We aren't growing into completeness. We are resting in the completeness of Christ. So these trials then, this practical book, this book is about practical living. It's about doing things because of who we are in Christ. That's what it's about. That's the same thing with 1 John. Though there is some theological truths there, they are the adhesive that hold together the pragmatism of the letter. They are the causality of why we should point in that direction. They are the commands of Christ, thus they are the doctrines of Christ. Inclusive, as I said last week, they are the full counsel of the Word of God. So, as we are to look at this first section of James, trials unto maturity, we need to see that our joy rests in Jesus Christ. And I know we hear that, beloved. I know we say that. I know we preach that. I know we sing that. Even as kids, I got the joy, 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 joy. You know, where? Down in my heart, where? <laughs> you know, that kind of silly stuff. And it, we've, made it a, we've made it a meme. We've made it a joke. We've made it some cliche, excited, let's get, let's get, you know, like, come on, baby, let's do the twist. I mean, people get the same excitement out of that kind of stuff. But we need to rest in the sense that joy is not always expressible. We need to understand that joy is not always happiness, that joy is not always in the context of a peace of mind in the circumstances and the reality in which we live. Because if that's the case, then our joy is conducive on things being okay. Or our joy is conducive in our mind being okay. Or our bodies being okay. Or our relationships being okay. But if Christ is our joy and our joy is in Him, and that joy is complete in the work of Christ, and then the prescription of God our Father that teaches us that we find that joy in its fullness together with one another in the Word and assembling together in life as we are able, and as long as we have what? As long as we are able to assemble, we are able to exhort and encourage one another on to love and to good deeds of service for the sake of Christ. But it is counterintuitive. So it's easy to say joy rests because Jesus stands, but it's harder to rea- realize it in our lives. Well, beloved, how is it that we're to realize that? What is it that we're supposed to 
understand and really apply to our lives in this context? Well, we need to understand that we should rejoice in Christ and we know that we are going to have trials. That's a promise for us. But these trials don't belong to our plate to manage. They have been given from the Father of life. Verse 17, all good things come and all perfect gifts come from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So he stands. He gives trials. God has ordained suffering. God has established suffering. Let me say it this way in a, better, in a stronger way. God causes our Suffering for his purposes. Thus, these sufferings and these trials are God's to manage. They are God's to rule to his effect. What, is, what does Peter say? This isn't new. Peter wrote to the, Peter wrote to the, uh, to the Jews and the dispersia. What does First Peter say? Listen, pull over to First Peter with me. I don't want to lose my place here. Well, might never find it again. First Peter, not Second Peter. Chapter 1. And that's a joke, by the way, about finding James. You just flip right on over. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is... And listen to these descriptives. The inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 6, it tells us what the joy of the Lord is. It says in 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. So James says, count it all joy, my brothers. We think he's going to say, because you are in Christ. No, that's a given. Because you've been called. Because you are the elect. Because you are the eternal children of God. That's a given. Peter explains it. In this you rejoice. Look at this comparison. Or look at this contrast. Though, or not the contrast, this other condition. Though, now for a little while, you, if necessary, have been grieved by various trials. See, Peter's saying the same thing James is saying. Nobody ever misunderstands, well, I'm sure they do, but as a whole, people don't really misapply Peter a whole lot in my circles. But it, may, it amazes me how people will take James and make him say something completely different. But he's saying the same thing Peter's saying. He's saying the same thing that Paul has said to the Philippians and to the Galatians and to the Ephesians and to the Corinthians and to everybody else he wrote to pastorally. So the joy is ours in the Lord because we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance who is Christ and we are being guarded by the divine power of God, which by the way Peter will say in his second letter, which gives us all that we need for life and godliness. Even though while, for a little while, if necessary, we're grieved by various trials. Why are we grieved by various trials? James has told us, we'll go through that tonight, but we are also going to see what Peter says. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Skip the parenthetical. 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But look at that middle section there, verse 7 of 1 Peter 1. The faith that is tested to be genuine is more precious than gold, and gold perishes when it is tested by fire. Faith does not perish. Why? Because faith looks to the one who is faithful. The faithfulness of Christ cannot perish. The work of Christ in redemption cannot fail. The promises of God are not conditional upon what man will do, what man will say, what man will accept, or what man will receive. The promises of God are conditioned upon the death of Christ, which has been fulfilled. Back to James 1. So, the joy of the Lord is Christ. Christ. And this steadfastness causes us to grow and to be perfected and to have be completed and to lack in nothing. Now, we talked about steadfastness in some spiritual sense. We talked about the idea of this last week a little bit. We've looked at it in the sense that Christ stands, but for some people, they don't like it. I have, I'm going to beat this up. As we go through Timothy on Sunday morning in a few weeks, as we start Timothy, uh, first and second Timothy, and as we continue in James over the remainder of this year probably, and even into next year, um, we, will, we will always find a small subsect of the believers who get frustrated with it. They get frustrated with it because there's some of us that really love, as we should, the gospel of free and sovereign grace. We should love the story of Christ. And there's others of us that just really love being told what to do. But there's a larger subsect of folks who don't like to be told what to do. And there is a large portion of our lives when even when we know we should listen, we don't want to listen. And James addresses this. He says, you look into the mirror and you forget what you look like. You read the word of God and you don't listen and do what it says. <laughs> You're worthless. I mean, that's what he calls it. And there is a context here. There is division amongst these people and griping and complaining and all sorts of stuff. And beloved, people love, and some of you probably saw some of this conversation, people love the negation over the truth many times. They'd rather say what they're not willing to do or what they're not willing to listen to or give excuses about what they wish that they did. You know, how, how they don't have to see this or to hear this or to do these things because they are in Christ. Well, that's ridiculous. Because everything that the apostles teach us say, Christ has done all this for His own glory, for His own namesake, and you, the beloved, have received the benefit of His work. Despite yourself, he has snatched you out of darkness. He has snatched you out of the world. He has against your will drawn you, kicking and screaming, loving the darkness. And he has shoved you into the light of this eternal son. He has shoved you into the kingdom of Christ. And then you see. And then you love. Because he first loved you. Therefore, <laughs> put away this. Therefore, walk like this. Therefore, speak like this. Therefore, love this way. Why? Because these things are called for because of what Christ has done. 
I've never met a believer, a true believer, who has ever argued with me about Ephesians 5, 21, 22. Where it starts, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And I've been in a many a men's breakfast where everybody, oh, yeah, yeah, amen, 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 amen. Husbands, likewise, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yeah, we're supposed to do that. That's right, that's right. I tolerate her. Jesus tolerated me. No, that's not what he's talking about. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, he says very clearly that Christ gave himself up to be destroyed to be hated, to be despised, to be killed, to suffer the wrath of sins that were not His, in order that He may present His bride spotless and blameless. And James is talking about that. It's not just implied, it's absolutely the adhesion of this entire letter. That's why we love one another. Nobody argues, yeah, husbands don't need to love your wives, Christ love the church. They just don't want to hear the how. It's not your way. You're not the boss. Shut your mouth. Or as what do they say? Shut your pie hole, you know. And submit to the Lord as it costs you everything so that your wife may be without blemish. And thank God that's not a condition of my eternal life or I would be condemned to hell this very moment. Christ has satisfied that. But nobody argues. Yeah, I want to do that. I want to try. I want to learn. But yet they'll argue when you tell them that they are subject to the instructions of the simplicity of, of relational unity and humility amongst the people of God. No matter what, no matter the sin, no matter the error, no matter the darkness, no matter the temperament, no matter the attitude, no matter how many bruises, no matter how many black eyes, we are subject to what? To listen. Because Christ listened to the Father and came and laid His life down as a substitute for His people. Jesus did not quit. Jesus perfected for all time those who are being set apart. Those who have been set apart. And in that we rejoice. Even if that joy is inexpressible. So now I'm going to get ahead of the teaching here. I don't want to really get past verse 4 because we're going to talk about steadfastness and we're going to talk about it from an antithetical point of view and then from an expositional point of view. But look at verse 5. Why does James say, if any of you lacks wisdom? Because what does the first, what does verses 2, 3, and 4 do? What does it do to my brain? What's it do to my brain? How am I supposed to do that? Count it all joy, dealing with trials, stand fast, be perfect, be perfected, lack nothing. What uh, you that? I mean, that's what comes out of my mouth. That's what my prayers sound like. I don't know what to say half the time. The arrogance in our lives would say, Father, thank you for helping me be steadfast. Thank you that I'm not like the weak guy over there. That's, a, that's, a, that's the prayer life of a non-converted person. 
That's not the prayer life of a saint. That's not the prayer life of... That's, not the, that's the person that's self-sufficient. That's the person that's self-glorying. That's the person trying to give God credit for creating something that's so great. Like Satan did. Like Lucifer. Look how good I look. I need to stand up there with you. Give credit. I'll stand a little bit back, but we should be on stage together. Well, beloved, we're all going to be on stage together with the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing His glory because by grace He has set us apart for Himself and He satisfied the wrath of God for us. Saving faith points to Him. Saving faith stands and rests without any effort whatsoever, without any decision or choice in any idea of cognance. It rests in the person of Jesus with great confidence. And when we hear this instruction, we automatically go, what am I going to do? And that's why James says, if you lack wisdom, because what He's telling us to do, what He's commanding us to do, is so unwise in the world's eyes, isn't it? It's unwise. Because every time something goes wrong in my life or your life, and I'm responsible for trying to do something, it's always like, we got to do something. What am I going to do? How am I going to respond to that? Where am I going to go? How am I going to do I mean, I, I got to looking at some texts yesterday. I had like 17 texts that I had not seen in over eight days. So far down the list. Log into Facebook, start trying to look and read. Hundreds, hundreds, plural hundreds of messages and, and things. What are you supposed to do? Dozens of emails a day. You can't keep up with all that stuff. And then what, what did I do? Oh, i got to do something. I've let these people down. And one message is me late last night, and I see it, and I go, Brother, I am so sorry. I am not able to keep up with all of this. It's okay. You got a minute now? Yes. Let's talk. You know, let's talk now. But there is this Superman syndrome in me. I got to do something. Consider it all joy. Oh, I got to do something because my joy is lacking. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're not going to do anything. And that's not a statement to get us off the hook of doing anything it's just the reality of it we must seek wisdom because if we act in our own understanding if we act in our own power if we act in our own wisdom we're going to act in the flesh and we're going to think we're doing that which is God's will but we are going to act in a way that is destructive we're going to destroy the very thing we're trying to repair. We're going to eliminate the very thing that we're trying to grow. We're going to become the very thing we're trying to avoid. Bitter, cynical, broken, hateful, frustrated, knuckleheads. And ultimately... When we think we've got to do everything and figure it all out without God's direct prescription, we've forgotten that God sovereignly creates these trials in order to prove Himself sovereign. And we rejoice as we stand firm in His sovereignty. And in doing so, we are, according to this text, verse 4, we are perfected in our faith as we grow stronger in the blessed promise, promises of God for His people. And what is that promise? He is our God, first and foremost. And then the gospel 
according to Christ. But what do we really want to do? We really want to quit. And there are times we have to quit some things. There are times we have to quit certain jobs. There are times we have to quit certain habits. There are times we have to quit certain attitudes. There are times we have to quit certain foods. There are times we have to quit certain clothes. There are times we have to quit certain things. I mean, right? There's always an end to something. But there's never an end to faith. There's never a time when the believer, the one who is born of God, will ever quit Christ. Because he and she knows that Christ has never quit them. So we do not quit. But the question that I always get when I'm giving counsel in this context is, well, Pastor, why would anybody ever quit in the faith? You're really asking that question? Are you, is your life, this is what I say, is your life so incredible that you've never considered throwing your hands up? Do you know, beloved, that it is easier to be in the world apart from the body, apart from Christ, from the world's perspective? Because God promises His pre-planned purposes in suffering for His people that He may prove Himself sovereign. And that we may grow in our steadfast faith to trust in Him. Even when there's nobody there for us and everything in the world lets us down, He will not fail. Because He cannot. But why would we quit? Because that's what common sense tells us to do. <laughs> Doesn't common sense tell us to quit? Oh man, man, why are you still struggling with that? Why are you still dealing with that? Man, how many years are you going to be able to tolerate this stuff? I got an accolade some months ago. Well, I'll tell you what, Tippins, there's one thing about you. You don't quit. I said, oh, yes, I do. I quit so many times, I just didn't tell nobody. I want to quit now. Don't you? Wouldn't it be just so much easier just to go, oh, this is off my plate. This is off my burden. But you can't. You can't. You can't because the Spirit of God will not let us go. He keeps us in our hardest of days. He keeps us in the, the most inexpressible joy. He holds us. He will hold me fast. That's one of my favorite songs that we sing. Love that song. I love to sing it like for 20 minutes, you know. Get a little Baptocostal in here and just keep singing the same thing over and over again because it's such a truth. So we hear it and we sing it and we pray it. But why quit? Because common sense tells you to quit. If you can't do anything better, quit. If you can't be successful, don't do it. Try something else. Well, we're not trying the faith. The faith is ours by gift. Why else quit? Because that's what the world tells us to do. Didn't Job's friends say quit? Job, you need to just quit. Just give up. Just stop. Quit. Whatever you're doing, quit. Quit. Why are you trusting us? Look what's happening to you. It's what the flesh tells us to do. I can't do this anymore. I can't hold this anymore. You're right. Christ can. Sometimes we just want to walk away from the trials that come because of our faith. But God will not let us go. We endure. We hold fast. We steadfast. Stand fast because He endured. And there is a prescription for how we endure. And James is going to unpack it over his entire letter. The Lord, the Lord, God the Spirit is going to unpack it. His words, not James's. Through this entire letter, through his apostle. And he's going to teach us something incredibly 
simple, but incredibly difficult. The unity of the faith and the promise of God to perfect his people in his love is prescribed as the reality of how we stand in our joy steadfastly in our faith. And we do it by two specific things, okay? Two specific things that the Scripture teaches us. The first one is learning. Learning. And it's not learning seminary-type learning. It's not learning theological rhetoric. It's not learning historical things. It's not learning, you know, uh, uh, the poetry of, 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 of pastors. It's not learning. It's learning the Scripture, thus learning Christ. That, that, is, that is the first element of how God establishes steadfastness with his people. He teaches them the gospel, then he grows them in their understanding of the gospel, then he expressly continues to teach them. But beloved, we are only able to continue to learn so much alone. Because there's some things that we can learn in principle, but we cannot learn at all in wisdom until we've experienced them. It was said to me very many, many years ago by a professor that Poetry is the language of experience. It's what I think, it's what I feel, it's what I saw, it's what I know, it's what I heard, it's what I touched, what I felt, what I experienced. But beloved, wisdom, wisdom is the fruit of experience. And if we're not together in the faith, if there aren't men of God in my life who are feeding into me as iron sharpens iron, every man like, yeah, I want to love my wife, love, 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 and iron sharpens iron, but I'm not listening to this frivolous mess. Well, little boys don't like instruction. Little girls don't like, children don't like instruction. They love to push back. But mature men and women in the faith love instruction because we are able to rejoice in the prescription knowing that as we learn and then we live these things out, we're going to be steadfast. So I guess there's three things, but I'll keep it to two. That's the first is we learn. The second is that we, as we learn, then the application of this, where wisdom truly comes in, is that we begin to love. So we learn the gospel, the love of God for his people alone, and then we live it out by loving one another as Christ loved us. How can we do that if we're not together? I could not count on all my fingers and toes the number of people who would love to be a part of our fellowship, of our family of faith. Yet, beloved, it is not ever going to be perfect. It is never going to be without trial. It is never going to be without tomfoolery and knuckleheadedness. By the mercy of God, if we are learning and experiencing things and walking together patiently and submitting to God Almighty through the oversight of those who love you and are taking <laughs> the credit in the context of the responsibility, not the credit, but the responsibility for watching over the joy of your souls to do that which the Bible has prescribed, we will see that loving is learned as well through the Word of God together. And that this loving, according to the apostles, is really worship unto Christ. You want to worship the Lord? You can't sing a song unto worship if you're not loving your neighbor, if you're not serving the body of Christ. You can sing all you want to. You're just enjoying the music. You're just enjoying the feeling. You're just writing, you're just writing some poetic nonsense in your own heart, calling it spirituality. That's what we do, isn't it? True worship 
is when we've learned and then together experience intimate sacrifice. People who are concerned with you despite who you are. People who care to breathe into you and to feed into you and to put into your life the power of God through their care and concern, not their correction. God help us. We don't need any more police officers in the church. Hey, son, quit jaywalking. Stop. That's not given to, it's not given to the church to do that to itself. Matter of fact, Jesus even says, until you stop jaywalking forever, don't you ever say, stop jaywalking. You see? Now, the half-hearted legalist will say, so what you're saying is we shouldn't call out sin? I will never answer a fool according to his own folly again. I've been preaching for 22 years behind the pulpit. And for the last 16, I have made it very clear what the Scripture teaches concerning how we handle things. <laughs> I won't answer it again. That's a fool to accuse that of me. And I'm done with that. Is that loving? I'm working on that, beloved, and seeking wisdom in that way. This is worship unto Christ by loving. This, by loving, is the wisdom of God displayed. I mean, think about what Paul says in Ephesians. Goodness gracious, I always try to keep these things for about a half hour. I think i got another 40 minutes on this text tonight. These two verses. I mean, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, he tells them to walk in the unity of the faith as imitators of God, to walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up. So we are to give, each other, give ourselves up for one another. We are to give up our desires for one another. We are to be honest about the fact that it's not easy, but we ought to put away things that interfere with our prayer life and with our intimacy. What does is, what is Paul say in Ephesians 5? Therefore, because we should love the way Christ loved, we should put away sexual immorality. Isn't that crazy? We should put away sexual immorality. We should put away impurity. We should put away covetousness. We should put away all these things. They should not even be named among you that which is improper. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. These are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So if we want to be effective in the faith, according to James and according to Paul and according to John and according to Peter and according to Jesus, we need to love each other and stop thinking about ourselves and put our, put our brothers and sisters and their needs and their, and, and before our own. This is nothing new. And instead of complaining and worrying and gossiping and killing and murdering and being all busybody, nosy idiots, we need to praise God for His glorious grace in Christ Jesus and shut up about everything else until we get that right. Until we get that right, we ought not move our foot forward. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. Well, I just, I'm not hearing it. The word of God is spoken. There's no yeah buts. You see what I mean? No yeah buts. No more yeah buts. Because that is the wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God is seen in the church. Of this gospel, Paul says in Ephesians 3, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the most worthless of all the saints... This grace was given in order to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created every stinking thing that ever was. Even the devils, God created them. The cults, God created them. The evil, God calls them to be. Woo! That's sovereignty. You see what I mean? I ain't mad, I'm happy. It's exciting. So that through the church, through the assembly of the saints, and only through the assembly of the saints, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the devil and his angels. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. Booyah! It's over. See? And we can just go, Man, why am I stressing out over all this stuff? Because you think you are God when we sit there and go, I'm wise. That's what we do. I think I'm God sometimes. I don't know that I'm thinking that. I just think I'm God sometimes. (laughs) Because of the way I act and the way I speak and the things that I think that I know that I don't know. I don't know. Oh, i got to be doing this. No, you don't. You cannot get step two till step one is done. And beloved, I'll be honest with you. I don't think God's going to let any of us get step one done until we stand before Christ complete. So let us be about that. The greatest thing that could ever happen to the church of Jesus Christ in the world today is that the power went out for a hundred years. We would grow and mature finally for the first time in my lifetime to the fullness of the maturity of the headship of Christ. Because for the first time ever, our lives and our pet things and what we think is most important would no longer be available to us will no longer be available to us. Loving one another simply is the wisdom of God. It is the worship of God. It is that which glorifies God. And it is thus. It is us having, look at, back to James, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, that you may be lacking in that. These aren't three separate things. These are all the same thing. This is what James is calling perfection. That you are completed in Christ and you lack in nothing. You are completed in wisdom and you're lacking nothing. You're completed in righteousness and you're lacking nothing. That is by faith. And then when we love one another, we are given everything that we need. Because we have everything that we need. Because we are everything in Christ. But we are nothing without Him. So when we quit... This is all the answer is why do people say, why, why would we even quit? <laughs> For those of you who are taking notes. Why quit? Because when we quit, it gets that off our back. We no longer have to rest in the, in the realm of the sovereign God. We no longer have to do it. But in one sense, we need to quit, don't we? In one sense, we don't quit the faith. But in another sense, we need to quit the flesh. So we do quit the flesh. We do quit trying to print provision for the flesh. See, people say, well, don't make provision for the flesh. Don't cuss and scream and get angry and all. That ain't what Paul's talking about when he says that. He's talking about don't make provision for the flesh in your self-righteousness, thinking you are the hero of the faith, thinking that you are something that God needs on his side. God does not need James Tippins. He doesn't need any of us standing here. He has us already. Whether we're elect or reprobate, he owns it all. That's why Paul says it. He's the creator of the entire world. Everything that is taking place, God has decreed, and there it is. 
So we worry because we don't understand sovereignty. We worry because we are still children and infants being tossed to and fro. We worry because we're not seeking wisdom. We already know we have it. You see how that works? We don't have wisdom. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our righteousness. This is the illustration that Paul gives in the the second letter to the Corinthians. If someone leaves the faith, he does not believe the promises of God, plain and simple. And ultimately, what I'm saying here is that sovereignty rules. Psalm 138 verse 8 says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. You, O Lord, your love endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Doesn't doesn't Paul say that to the Thessalonians? He who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it unto perfection. And what was the context of Paul saying that about the Thessalonians? We have heard of your faith and we have heard of your love for the saints. Nobody is commended for not having both. Nobody is worshiping God for not having both. But yet, there are a lot of the children of God who are elect, who are saved, who will always and forever be in the hand of Christ, who do not love the brethren and are self-sufficient, I guess, because they have wisdom that is not of Christ, but they think it is the wisdom of Christ, and they act in a manner that is lacking, that does not hold to the sovereignty of God. See, we are complete, and as we are complete, we are mature. And as we are mature, we are growing. And as we are growing, not in a sense of righteousness, but of faith, we continue to recognize that our completeness is in Christ Jesus. And that then, when we serve one another, we are steadfast. And when we are steadfast, we will never fail. Because Christ is the one who's already succeeded. So, when... We want to see the application here in closing. Let's just talk about a few of these things very quickly. Without steadfastness in the life of the believer with the saints together in the local church, we will never grow to maturity. We will never love the brethren. We will never remain strong under trial. We will never be consistent. We will never rightly worship. We will never have wisdom. We will never fully understand grace. We will never rest and rest and rest and grace upon grace upon grace. And we will never receive in our minds the full comprehension with all the saints, the fullness of the love of God. And I'll go back to Ephesians and then I'll pray. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul prays for this church, for this church. (laughs) Right after what I was going to read. So right after I just read. This is according to the eternal purpose. Look at verse 11. That he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness. Christ is, our, is, is, the, is the way we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. See, these church loved Paul and they loved each other. They were concerned for him. And then in verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened this is a prayer paul says i pray that he will grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being that's steadfastness 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's steadfastness. This is not evangelistic. This is empowerment to Christian living, Christian satisfaction, Christian rest, Christian faith. That you be, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, is what anchors you to Christ, to the love of God, His love for you, may have the strength to comprehend. See, we've got to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, surpasses the mere logical understanding of the mind that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Then he gives a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, I, Paul, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Listen to my brother James as he taught you, as he teaches the Jews, the Christian Jews. See, listen to the word and be full. So there's, there's a little more of the context of James writing there so that we can get the essence of what this gospel life is all about. We don't get to choose how Christ is glorified. He's already prescribed all of the ins and outs of what that looks like. We don't get to choose what our life is in the context of our ministry. He's already laid down all the stoppers, all the boundaries, and all the requests. So let's rest in Him that we may have the fullness of God in us and that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for wisdom. Lord, it takes so much. I have so little. (sighs) But in your mercy and in your kindness and in your long-suffering and in your patience, Lord, you endure with us because we have been perfected forever, forever, forever and ever in Christ Jesus whose righteousness has been counted to us, whose perfection has been counted to us, whose patience has been counted to us, whose steadfastness has been counted to us. And we are before you now, Lord, as vessels of your love and mercy, as instruments of grace, So help our lives be composed by your sovereign hand. Help our hearts sing the symphony of worship and love and sacrifice. Lord, destroy and smash and remove haughtiness. Destroy earthly and fleshly wisdom. Father, destroy this heroic attitude in so many of us that we think we got to do something. Father, take that word from our soul. You have done it all and you are doing it all this day. Let us wait patiently at the shore and wait for you to part the sea for us to by faith walk across into eternal life. Through Jesus Christ alone shall we stand before you and in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.